I'm Dennis Foley. Now, here's Jack Riccardi. All right, Dennis, good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to our Monday show. And I hope you had a wonderful and joyous Easter and Easter Sunday. And, and by the way, thank you to everybody who worked yesterday. If you had to work yesterday, um, you know, many people in this country choose not to work at all. Uh, and uh, But people that went to work and thereby missed being with family or friends or missed a meal or something, we appreciate everybody that worked uh, yesterday and today. Thank you for working. And if you could call this working, I'm working. So uh, they are having a major meltdown on the left over this federal judge ordering an end to the federal mask mandates on transit. Uh, if you missed the uh, story... Um, the, the, apparently, when when a federal judge or federal judges does something that the left likes and had been rooting for, it's brave and they admire it and they get all um, they get like a warm fuzzy over the Constitution. But when it's something they don't want, it becomes one person's ruling our country, and this is unsustainable and impossible, and we're, who is this 35-year-old broad in Tampa telling us we don't need masks on airplanes? You know, they've come a long way from Believe Every Woman, haven't they? And not only that, she's a 35-year-old female federal judge appointed by you-know-who. So we're going to break it down with our constitutional law expert. But basically, U.S. District Judge Catherine Mizell said the mandate was unlawful because it exceeded the statutory authority of CDC. And its implementation violated administrative law. She wasn't wasn't saying masks are bad or masks are good. And, And it's sad that we even have to explain this to the left, but... I guess they drink their own Kool-Aid. You know, that's not what we go to the federal courts for. We go to them for interpretations of the uh, rule of law. So this isn't about masks, the science of masks, whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable wearing them. It was the impulse of the government over the last two years to issue all kinds of rules, and by the way, under Trump as well as Biden, to issue all kinds of rules, all kinds of, it's an emergency, we have to do this, you should shut up and do what we tell you. And and now, little by little, this is being litigated and working its way through the courts. This is not the last word, by the way, so we could find out tomorrow that some other court or some other judge has reversed her, but... In any event, at the moment, this is the litigation of whether or not um, these agencies had the power to do what they did. Will the Biden administration appeal this? I think they probably will, although I noticed that even the airlines are saying we're, we're kind of, we're kind of over this. The CEO of Delta was saying before the ruling that he wishes the mask mandates, uh, would go away. But the meltdown today, by people uh, on the left and Beltway journalists is beautiful. Uh, Here's a guy saying, Who should decide whether air passengers must wear masks? A federal agency staffed with experts accountable to the president or a 35-year-old Trump judge in Tampa? (laughs) It's a dictatorship of a Tampa woman. 
Um, this same guy, by the way, had tweeted how proud he was of the judiciary when four uh, female judges uh, blocked Trump's uh, travel ban. So, Now, um, do you agree or disagree with ending the mask mandate? And, and I'm asking you now, not as a matter necessarily of law, but just where are you? Where do you stand on this? So, if you're flying, if you're getting on a bus, what have train, what have you? Um, what do you think about it? Um, I, I, I think I think there's two things going on here, and they're not related. I think the actual litigation of this, meaning does the government have the power, is important, and that's happening, that's unfolding. But then the other part of this is, as an actual pandemic. COVID is gradually subsiding into something that is in the background. It's there. People are taking precautions. You still should, but it's not. It doesn't have the primacy in in our lives and how we organize our lives that it did. And that's just hard for some people to let go of. 210-599-5555. So we learned that in March... 80,000 um, illegal immigrants were released into the United States. The record, encounter record, was the headline over the weekend. 221,000 were encountered by CBP. But underneath that, they said, well, we encountered or we stopped 221,000, but we released 80,000 uh, into the country. And that is what is panicking midterm Democrats. Mark Kelly, the Arizona senator, is blasting Biden again. This is a guy that campaigned with Biden in 2020. Okay, remember, Mark Kelly is the former shuttle astronaut. Now his new thing is he's running in Arizona as a, I'm a, I'm a man with a plan. I was a shuttle pilot. We always had plans. Joe Biden doesn't have a plan for lifting Title 42. By the way, you know you grew up in the 80s when every time you see Title 42, you want to call it Level 42. I can't help myself. I'm going to do that before the show's over. Um, And how about Beto? Beto is having quite an April. Another Democrat that doesn't know where he stands on Title 42. We told you uh, a couple of weeks ago that he was against Title 42, that he thought it was a, a bad, evil leftover from the Trump days. Then, about a week ago, he said that Joe Biden was bad for ending Title 42 because he didn't have a plan for what to do with all these immigrants. Yesterday, he flopped back to his original position and says it's time to end Title 42. You may not like what Greg Abbott is doing, but compared to Greg Abbott, Beto O'Rourke looks like a, a gerbil that forgot to take its meds. I mean, he cannot stay on one position. Those flip-flops are, are all within the last two weeks, not over like a period of time where you'd say, well, my thinking evolved. And then did you see the story over the weekend about that? This was a big, big social media thing. There's a restaurant in Georgia called Appalachian Cafe or something, and they put a sign up that said, if you're a, a Brandon voter, and you don't have any regrets over being a Brandon voter. We, we wish you would leave. We wish you wouldn't even come in. We don't want your business. And some other stuff. So this is, an, this is kind of a blah, blah, blah story to me. You know, I mean, okay, fine. I, I get it. You, you're, you're signaling that Biden voters are not 
your preferred voters. You're not saying you won't serve them. You're not saying you'll throw them out on their ear. You're telling them at the door, we're an anti-Brandon restaurant. And you're free to do that. As far as I'm concerned, if you own a restaurant and you work hard to keep it open and you pay the bills and you do all that, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. As a customer, I don't really want to eat at a restaurant that doesn't want me, you know? I, I think you have a better experience when you go to restaurants that want your business. So if there's a sign on the door of a restaurant that says, you're kind, not welcome, I, I think you should go somewhere else. That's just my advice. But this is the part of the story that, that I thought was interesting. So, again, up to this point, pretty, pretty you know, predictable. You, the usual people are saying the usual things about this restaurant. But then as they started getting criticism... One of the points of criticism was that people said, hey, you guys, meaning the owners, took PPP money. You took PPP money during the pandemic. Give it back. You took Biden's money. Give it back. Biden's money? Really? The PPP program started under Trump. But it wasn't Trump's money or Biden's money. It was your money and my money. We're in big trouble if we start identifying government programs as if the money literally gets pulled out of the pocket of whoever the president is. I mean, I'm sure there have always been people that thought that. Politicians count on you thinking that. But these are people out in the open seriously acting like they think PPP is Biden bucks or Trump cash. And it's not. And that, to me, was more important than the whole business of the sign and whether or not people were being served at this restaurant in Georgia. I think that, that that's the sign that we're in trouble right there. Not the sign, but the sign that people think it's Biden's PPP or it's Trump's PPP. Anyway, I want to know what you think about that. 210 Fifty-five, fifty-five. Do people really think that the PPP money came from Joe Biden? Or that in 2020 it was coming from Donald Trump? I mean, people are talking to this restaurant in Georgia like, give your money back to the president if you're not serving his voter. What the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? I mean, I guess if you wanted to go really deep, you could say, well, if somebody thinks they're conservative and describes themselves as conservative, uh, maybe they shouldn't take government money. But then again, the whole point of PPP was that the government had taken away your business. I mean, 2020 was the greatest taking of private um, property in the young history of the United States of America. It's not a new thing in other countries. It's routine, but it was an extraordinary thing in the United States of America to see federal, state, local government take people's business. That's what they did. You can you can argue about whether or not it was well-intended or it saved lives. I don't think it did. The evidence indicates it didn't, but it was a great taking. And so the the, the genesis of PPP, supposedly... And I have my doubts, but I'm I'm giving you their version, okay? The genesis of that program was, we took away your ability to operate your business. We're going to give you some help, a bridge loan, a bridge fund, so that you can 
keep operating it or resume operating it. And everybody took it. Very, very few people stood on principle and said, I, don't, I just don't want it. There were very few. And uh, it continued until, I believe, the middle of last year. So it happened under both administrations. It wasn't Biden money. It wasn't Trump money. And neither is any federal program that happens under the presidency of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Yeah, that, that's like watching a, a, a B-52 fly over and go, oh, that's a, <laughs> those are really old planes, I guess. That's an Eisenhower B-52. That's a, that's a Nixon B-52. No, no, it's not how this works. 210-599-5555. As far as the restaurant owner putting the sign up, um, what are your, what, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? If you voted for Brandon's Build Back BS, and don't have remorse or regrets. I wish you would leave. I don't need your business. Your ignorant, naive decision has more than doubled our cost of goods and depleted our labor force by more than triple. And um, look, I, you're, you're, you have the right to do it. You're not actually, you're not breaking any laws. You're not, it, it, you're, it's fine. I, I guess it's a sign that we're coming back because obviously at one point, most restaurants were in need of every customer and every transaction they could do. So maybe he's able to do this now and he can he can survive without the Brandon voters. I don't know. I, I don't really have an issue with it one way or the other. If you want to argue it, we can argue it. But I'm, I'm okay with people doing this. And I'm okay with them doing it the other way, too. And I don't want the government telling businesses who they have to serve and what they have to do. I, I just think... Um, I just think if you go into or start to go into a business, especially a restaurant, and they're going to tell you or signal to you that they don't like your kind, do your stomach a favor and go somewhere else. You know, why, why would you take that chance? Why would you mess around with that? It's your money. Spend it on people that are happy to have you. 210-599-5555. When's the last time you went to the Galleria in Houston? Have you been recently? I haven't been in a long time. It's probably been 20 years. I don't remember the last time. I just know it's been a while. I do remember the first time I went, and it was the first time I had ever come to Texas. And I came for the 92 Republican Convention, which was in Houston. And I was working out of New York at the time. It was the first time I'd ever been to Texas. And the first thing they would tell you, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the first thing people would tell you about Houston was that the, the, the Galleria was the nicest, most upscale place to go. It was the, they, they were very proud of it. It was fancy. It, it had all kinds of cool features and, you know, um, attractions. It was the show place. I mean, there were other things, too, but, but the Galleria always got mentioned. Um, over the weekend, uh, there was gunfire at the Galleria. Um, it was outside, but people inside had to take uh, cover. Have you noticed how many places around this country have gone to bleep 
Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the nice mall or what was a nice mall is now a, you know, crime-ridden nest. You'd be crazy to go there, people say now, but like 20, 30 years ago, oh, let's go. Everybody goes. Have you ever wondered why that happens? I mean, some of that is natural. I don't know what the word for that is. There's a word for like the natural decay of things or the evolution of things, and particularly with like malls and retail, people always like the new things. So whenever a city has a new mall, temporarily at least, that becomes the cool one, right? But I think we got to look past that because that's only part of the explanation for why entire cities that used to be beautiful, that used to be beautiful to visit, or parts of cities that used to be show places like the Galleria in Houston, have gone to crap. We have to start being honest about why this is happening. And again, aside from the obvious sort of time marches on and, you know, decay of the old, rise of the new, we're making decisions that are rendering places unfit to live, unfit to be, unsafe to be. Now, I realize that people will still go to the Galleria after what happened, but there will also be people who will hear about it or see it and say, I'm, or were there when it happened, and they'll never go back. Just like there are people who now will never go to Portland or Seattle or San Francisco or New York. And at one time, those were, again, those were some of the most popular cities in this country. What happened? Who happened? I mean, these are the results of electing politicians who do not care about the safety of you and me. They are trying to make a point about themselves. They are trying to virtue signal on race or socioeconomics. And they don't care how many bodies get stacked up or what the death count is. They don't care what the crime rate is because they've got a point to make, and they're going to make it. And they won't be there when the shots ring out because they have private shoppers or they go elsewhere. But we keep letting, and they're mostly Democrats, we keep letting elected officials flout our laws, not enforce laws that we've duly passed, not keep people in jail who've been convicted, not even hold them after they've shot up a place. Look what happened in South Carolina. That guy's going to be let out on bail if he can make bail. You know, we need to start asking, not, well, I just won't go there anymore, but why the hell are we letting them ruin parts of cities or entire cities? How much longer is that going to go on? And, you know, they're going to tell you it's a gun problem because that's what they want to talk about. But how about the problem of not keeping people in jail who are supposed to be? How about the problem of letting people out? Every single mass shooting. Am I wrong about this? We find out the person has a rap sheet. We find out the person was already in the Huskow. These aren't virgin criminals. This isn't their first time at the rodeo. And we keep letting it happen, and we keep doing it. When I went to the Galleria for the first time, it was 30 years ago, this was the furthest thing from your mind. Everybody said Houston can be a little sketchy, but that's the nicest, safest place to be. That's the If you're new to Houston, that's where you want to go. And, in fact, that is where we went. 
We get all these George Soros-backed DAs. We've got one here in Bear County. They've got one there in Harris. We've got that Harris County judge, Lena Hidalgo. We may wind up with a judge like that in the Bear County election. Defund the police. Demonize the police. Let people out who are already in. Act surprised when they go back to their bad boy ways. And another place people, law-abiding people, can't go anymore. I mean, do we wait till we run out of those places, or will we run out of them, or will we just keep building new malls, or what's the, you know, what's the deal? And again, whether it's the Galleria or it's North Star Mall or whatever, these, these are places that have been built up over time by hard work, by private enterprise, by private investment, and people are proud of them and enjoy them. They give hard-working people a chance to go have some fun. You should be mad that the people you elected to enforce the laws are allowing people out to commit crime again and make more and more no-go places for you. No wonder they want you to stay home and keep a mask on. I mean, that's... That makes their job a lot easier. We welcome to the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Uh, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense of the Bush 41 administration and um, a widely read columnist, uh, Jed Babin. Jed, good afternoon to you. Well, good afternoon. So I was uh, looking at a conversation that Senator Chris Coons, who's a Delaware Democrat, had on CBS yesterday uh, where he said, look, the uh, history of the 21st century is going to come down to how we respond to Ukraine, and we need to start discussing sending American troops to Ukraine. Quote, Putin will only stop when we stop him. What, what, would be, what is going on at the moment that would make that an imperative on day 50-whatever of this war? Well, I think the only thing that's imperative to the Democrats right now is taking people's minds off inflation and the border crisis and all the other things they've screwed up. Uh, so that's kind of what's behind this. I don't think there's any uh, serious consideration, at least I hope there's no serious consideration, of uh, putting U.S. troops into Ukraine. Uh, the history of the 21st century is a long way from being written. And the Ukraine war, good or bad, uh, is going to be a very small part of it. I find it amusing that our politicians are suddenly interested in standing up for liberty. I uh, <laughs> I would have liked to have gotten them interested in that a long. Yeah, I mean, where where have you been? We uh, we could have used your help on that a long time ago, right here at home. Um, but in in terms of the way things are going over there, I mean, wh- how would you characterize the the trend lines? How are things going in Ukraine? Well, I think right now it's pretty much even money on both sides. Uh, The Ukrainians have fought very valiantly, bravely, and very effectively against the Russian onslaught. Uh, However, they are running short of weapons and materiel, uh, and it's up to us and other nations like us uh, to get them what they need, uh, which Mr. Biden has pretty much refused to do. He sent an awful lot of stuff over there, uh, but what they really need are combat aircraft and anti-aircraft systems Uh, like the old Soviet S-300, which Slovakia gave them. Uh, In the Russian side, they're getting reinforcements. Their logistical problems are a long way from being solved, uh, and they're pressing hard on the Donbass region, uh, trying to cement uh, what they've already taken. 
Uh, so I don't think that they're really anywhere near done. I think there's a long road ahead for this war, and uh, I don't believe there's any prospect for peace in that uh, in that country. So I'm asking this completely apolitically. All right, I'm not asking right, left, red, blue. I'm just curious if the best thing for the Biden administration to do is give Ukraine more technology and weaponry. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. And if we have that, which I believe we do, right? Why would we not do it? What would be the what would be the hesitation to to give them more of what they need? Well, a couple things. First off, we don't actually have the MiG-29s and SU-27s they need. Uh, they are available from Poland, and I believe from Romania uh, also has quite a few. Uh, but we were trying to get them into Ukraine, uh, and the Ukrainians were going to get them through uh, our base in Germany, a Ramstein Air Force Base there. Uh, the reason we're not doing it, and you know, it, it's not a political reason, it's just that Mr. Biden has personally refused the Polish uh, ability to do that. Uh, and it's just inexplicable to me. He apparently is quite intimidated by Putin uh, and believes that such a move would be escalatory. Uh, you know, I don't know what else the... Wouldn't it just <laughs> I be, I mean, just though, but do. thinking like a politician, it just seems like it'd be like the people, people are very in Ukraine's corner right now, right? The American people, the people of the sure. world. So it seems like it'd be a no-brainer if you're the Democrats Okay, everybody loves the Ukrainians. Let's be seen as as really giving them as much of what they need as we can. If if Boris Johnson can get into Ukraine, why can't a MiG twenty nine get into Ukraine? Well, obviously it could, but Mister B- Mister Biden personally stopped the Poles from transferring those aircraft. Right, right. And I believe he's also personally stopped the Romanians from transferring aircraft. So. I don't know what is in his mind, comma, if anything, comma, uh, but I think that there really is a lot of bad decisions. There are really a lot of a lot of bad decisions being made in the Biden White House. If they're reluctant to send stuff, does that imply they would be even more reluctant to buy into what Senator Coons is saying? In other words, there's no way this is going to happen because they won't even send material, much less manpower. Well, I think that's right. Uh, they are sending material. They're just not sending the right stuff uh, that what the real, you know, Ukrainians really need. Uh, there is an awful lot of aid going into Ukraine. There is a lot of uh, ammunition, a lot of supplies going in, ammunition, Stinger missiles, Javelin missiles, things of that nature. Uh, but we're holding back on the combat aircraft. And, again, it's, it's for reasons that are best understood by Mr. Biden and Mr. Biden alone. Uh, And again, not a political question here. The issue really is what the Ukrainians need, and do we have the ability to get it to them? We do have that ability. We know what they need. They're asking for it. They're pretty much begging for it, uh, but they're just not going to get it. Why do you think, and I'm I'm sorry I'm asking you all these crystal ball questions, but why do you think um, President Zelensky said over the weekend that the world should be prepared for the possible use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Well, obviously he's scared, uh, and he should be. Uh, The Russians flew a nuclear-capable bomber over Ukraine uh, this past weekend. So obviously they're trying to do everything short of dropping nukes on Ukraine, although I, I can't say that's not going to happen. You know, they might use chemical weapons. They might use a lot of different things. Well, that's why I'm asking, because, I mean, 
and you can tell me if I'm wrong, and it won't hurt my feelings. I, I'm wrong about a lot of this stuff. That's why we have you on. But I would think that, like, chemical, I mean, I know they're all wrong, and they're against the Geneva Convention, but chemical weapons would come way before nuclear weapons in likelihood of use, wouldn't they? Well, I would think so, yeah. I mean, so it just seems weird to me that we keep jumping to the nuclear thing. Like, I don't, is that a scare tactic or is that, is there some intelligence that suggests that that really is under consideration or? Well, I, I don't know what our intelligence shows because I'm not privy to it. But at this point, you know, you only have Putin's word and he keeps threatening, you know, unbelievable consequences mm-hmm. if we go further in, mm-hmm. uh, in supplying Ukraine with weapons and material. So, I mean, that's an implicit threat of nuclear war, and his implicit threat extends out to the NATO nations. I don't think, given what the Russian army has been able to do so far, that there is any way they could attack NATO. I mean, they simply would lose in a very short order. But the point really comes down to Putin is desperate. I think he is, he is at war for two months now, which he thought he was going to be out of it in three or four days, and he's losing support around the world and russia is you know they're not terribly hurt by the sanctions that have been put in uh because the europeans are still buying gas and oil from them so you know there's a lot going on and it's very complicated right now but the russians are in a very bad way trying to prove themselves they have not proved themselves so far mr putin's ego is at stake russia's reputation as the big tough guy is at stake and right now uh they're not so tough what is the significance to you know i'm looking for like the 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 layman answer here um because i'm sure there's deeper significance but like for our purposes what's the significance of sweden and finland uh wanting to join nato well i think it's very significant i mean those nations have stayed out of nato for what since 1949 yeah uh and you know they are now seeing what happens in ukraine and they know darn well that unless they join nato they're not going to be able to claim the article 5 mutual defense pact uh, benefits if they get attacked and they are quite vulnerable you know they're on the baltics they're in the in the baltic area uh and you know in scandinavia they are clearly vulnerable to russian aggression so they're very worried they should be worried uh, right now, the best thing they can do is join NATO, and I think they will uh, within the next month or so. And pretty sophisticated militaries, right? Yeah, they're pretty darn good. They're small, but they're pretty darn good. Uh, the, well, the Finns, the Norwegians, the, uh, the Swedes, they are very, very good. They've got a very high level of, of uh, technology, and you know they're, they're pretty darn good. But they haven't been integrated into our types of forces yet. And that will take a while, but it can be done, I think, relatively easily. Kind of ironic when you think about it that Putin supposedly started this whole thing with Ukraine because he didn't want uh, another NATO country on his border. Uh, and Finland is, has a bigger border with him than Ukraine does. So <laughs> yes. it, 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 he would wind up with much more NATO in his front yard than he had at the beginning of this. That's true. And he can't afford that. So that's why he's threatening uh, Finland and Sweden right now and trying to intimidate them to not join NATO. But I think they will nevertheless. I think they're seeing the writing on the wall, and they want that NATO protection, which they're not otherwise going to get. They've, you know, Ukraine has proved, if nothing else, that if you're not a member of NATO, you're not going to get protected by the United States and our allies. 
Jed Babin, read him in American Spectator, other places as well, and uh, always good to have you here with us, Jed. Thank you today. Um, asking you on the JR poll, do you agree or disagree with ending the uh, federal mask mandates for transit? Federal judge uh, blocking that for now. We're going to break that down for you coming up here in the next uh, half hour. Now, um, I thought this is a really funny story. If you had the kind of day where you could use a laugh, this this will make you laugh, I think. Made me laugh, but I'm weird that way. So we go to Arizona. We go to the Scottsdale Unified School District, and the PTA at one of those schools was having a charity event. You know, PTAs do that. And they put on a big party, and they hired a disc jockey. And the disc jockey uh, was playing all this retro and disco, and he came in a gold lame outfit with a big afro and sunglasses. And he was pumping out the jams, and everybody was having a good time. And then two diversity experts in the community, you know, community activists, translation, people that don't like to have fun, said, this is awful. How could you hire a disc jockey to wear blackface at a PTA dance? What is the matter with you? What kind of cut? And the guy had to come forward and say, um, I am black. I'm not wearing blackface. This is actually what I look like every day. This is me. His name is Kim Coco Hunter, 56, well-known local DJ. They hired him. He showed up. <laughs> and these two just assumed this was somebody wearing blackface. Do they not think there are actual black people? Is, is that not a thing for them? He had some fun with it. Uh, he said, was I not black enough? <laughs> How black do I have to be for people to know that I'm an actual black person? And um, I guess part of what happened was there it was a mostly white crowd. And so they presumed that the disc jockey was one of their white you know, friends I, that he and and I mean, I I I mean, I'm not going to say it will never happen. But doesn't it seem at this point fairly unlikely that a person is going to just slap on some blackface and and do a very public, high-profile event? Again, don't. I'm not saying it could never happen, but at this point, where we're at right now. That probably shouldn't be your first assumption. If you see a black person, your first assumption, this is just me now, just, just me talking. You see a black person, your first assumption should be that is a black person. And then you can work your way down to the blackface thing if you have other evidence. But in this case, they didn't do their homework. They could have looked the guy up. I mean, just find out his name, maybe look at his Facebook page or Maybe look at the, the website for his DJ business. Oh, this is him. This is what he looks like. This is what he looks like all the time. It was like a disco party, you know, and he was spinning them. And apparently everybody loved it and everybody was having a good time, except these two. There's always one or two, right? And it's, it, you know, I'm sorry, I hate to paint with a broad brush, but 
there's just people on the left that cannot have a good time. They used to say this about conservatives. They used to say the people on the right were sticking the mud. They they were uptight. They were all hung up on rock lyrics or whatever. I, I guess if you live long enough, you see everything. It's now it's people on the left. Good work, you two. So I'm trying to figure out uh, what what would be the term for white people accusing a black guy of wearing black face. And I think the term for that would be red face. That's what we're going to call that. That was a case of red face. But, I mean, this is what we've come to. I mean, this is like peak 2022 right here. So they're they're having a PTA event at the school district in Arizona. They hire a disc jockey. They're having a party. The theme of the party is like, you know, Saturday Night Fever. And, you know, they're playing dance music. Everybody's having a good time. It's a good cause. Support your PTA. And there's two people standing off to the side. You can picture this, right? There's two people standing off to the side. And they're not there to party. They're there to find outrage. They're not looking for the dip. They're looking for the outrage. And, oh, wait a minute. This is a mostly white crowd. This disc jockey must be one of their white friends in blackface. Would be very easy to check. But why check? Why bo- When you're feeling the outrage, you want to just let it go. You're in the moment, right? So they go all in. Accusing the black disc jockey of wearing black face. Their names, by the way, Stuart Roden and Jill Lassen. They sound like a fun duo. I'm going to include them at my next party. They are diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. Well, I would say not, actually. I, I mean, I think they're the opposite of experts, but whatever. Um, and they had seen this guy and decided he must be in blackface. Uh, the PTA president put out a statement saying the DJ that we hired was, in fact, a black man. It's insulting that you feel myself or PDA would condone racist behavior or encourage it, etc., etc. Um, and the DJ himself, a man named Kim Hunter, had some fun with it, said, uh, uh, they thought the DJ or the person there was in blackface, and that person they thought was in blackface was me. They were probably thinking the same thing I am. Wow, are there no black people here? He ridiculed the accusation. Quote, was I not black enough? How black do I got to be for people to know that I'm an actual black person? When they got in trouble, they tried to cover it by saying, well, they thought that perhaps he had darkened his skin, which even makes it worse. That's even stupider. I mean, you already dug the hole, right? You've dug all the way to China. We're still allowed to say that. Don't take any deeper. Just take the L, right? Take the L. Not going to win this one. But see, this is where we're at now. This is how crazy things have gotten. And I, I kind of celebrate the craziness. You've, you may have heard me say this before. I, I think we have to have a lot of people see a lot of this kind of thing. So the people that don't follow the news closely are not terribly political. See, now they get the idea, oh, man, this whole thing has gone too far. This whole wokeness thing, this whole, you know, race is everything and everything is race. The, the insanity, the, the um, almost uh, sublime ridiculousness of a story like this is necessary to get people to wake up and say, okay, we've, this is enough's enough. 
it takes it takes the most extreme and ridiculous things to kind of get everybody, you know, alert. And now they are, I think. I hope. Um, it's kind of weird how much is happening around our public schools. I mean, this was a PTA event, but recently we've talked an awful lot about um, grooming kids, pushing um, kids into questioning or doubting their uh, gender or um, encouraging them to see themselves as sexually fluid at, at an age where they are not really equipped to deal with that. And so unless a child is already thinking those things or grappling with those things, it's, it's really very dangerous and, and, I think, predatory to push those things. But we see all this happening, and then we have, you know, layered on top of that, we have the whole, um, you know, CRT. We're telling young people uh, who uh, are, you know, haven't even started out in life that they somehow have or have inherited privilege or culpability for slavery. Um, all of this... Uh, to me, is, I mean, w- we, we care about our kids. We want to make the point. These are our kids. These are not your kids. We pay for teachers, classrooms, curricula. So, yes, we're going to have a say in it. But this is also an undermining of our democracy. And I, I think it's interesting. I was joking with Jed Babin last hour that we have United States senators giving speeches about how we need to defend democracy in Ukraine. Now, democracy is under attack in Ukraine. No one would dispute that. But um, democracy is under attack here. What are you doing about it here? Where is the defense of it here? And we can't, we're of no use to the world as a defender of democracy if we can't defend our own. You know, if you think about our history and you think, well, we've always gone around the world and we've stood up for this and gotten involved in that. Yeah, but we had our... We had our crap together, pardon my language. We had our you-know-what together, right, when we were doing that. We don't right now. And I'm not saying you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, but I would just like to hear politicians express a little more interest in defending American democracy since they're so interested in the democracy or lack thereof in other countries. It is repression. It is oppression. It is undercutting your vote and your voice when the classroom is used as a personal venue for obsessions or agendas. And we have to, when, when, when it comes down to what's being taught in schools or how it's being taught, um, we have to arrive at that democratically. If you believe that we the people should make those decisions, then you support democracy. If you think that we, the people, should sit down and shut up and let experts make that decision, then you support dictatorship or fascism. And I'm not even getting into how weird the people are that you're farming this out to. I'm just saying if you're if you're um, um, you know surrendering your voice and your vote and saying, well, it's really none of our affair, then that's not democracy. And we don't have a moral obligation to defer.
to these people because they may be gay or lesbian or whatever. That's not that that is not the point. It isn't it isn't any more or less cruel to stand up to them than it would be if they were straight. So some of these teachers are letting us know that they are enthusiastic about this curriculum or these lesson plans because they themselves are gay. I, I'm not I'm not picking on them, but that really has no relevance to this. Okay? The relevant point is, are we a democracy or are we a dictatorship? Do we choose as a people how we educate our kids or not? And that is in the balance right now. So there's no special deference because you're gay. There's no special deference if you're a teacher. I respect teachers. I revere teachers. But again, I don't want to make a teacher the dictator of our country, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't give dictatorship powers to a teacher and say, well, they can run the whole country because they're a teacher. That's, that's not how you indicate respect. We have to respect the process, too. And educators may be trained in certain ways. They may have certain um, schooling. But they're not better or smarter or, or um, somehow specially equipped or divinely inspired. And, and the proof of that, obviously, is that the education of our kids is in shambles right now. I'm not laying that at the feet of every teacher, but I am definitely laying that at the feet of that industry or that, that field. What do you think? I mean, I, I just what triggered me was hearing this senator say, we need to go, we need to put American troops in, in Ukraine and defend democracy. And I'm sure it hasn't occurred to him, but maybe somebody should whisper in his ear, democracy needs defending here too. A federal judge striking down the CDC mask mandate for transportation. And as of this moment, according to the Department of Transportation, uh, they are not enforcing the mask uh, orders, for example, in airports. The airlines also are figuring this out, this ruling just coming down. And joining us to break it down, constitutional law professor Bill Pyatt is on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. Professor, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack, and thank you for having me on. No, it's great to have you. Um, as is always the case, there are people reacting to this as if the judge attacked the science of mask wearing. This has nothing to do with the efficacy of masks or lack thereof. This is really about whether or not um, the CDC had the authority and there is administrative law authority to do it, right? You're absolutely correct. So under the Constitution, Congress enacts laws, the president executes them. The CDC is part of the executive branch. I'm looking at the 59-page opinion of the judge this afternoon, and the judge acknowledges that the public has a strong interest in combating the spread of COVID, but you can't allow agencies to act unlawfully even in the pursuit of desirable ends. And so the CDC can uh, create rules to prevent an emergency spread of a disease and there is even a good cause exception to the notice requirement and rulemaking requirement. But the judge found that the CDC did not invoke this good cause exception. They can't show there's an emergency now. There's, there's no reason to extend it for two weeks. I mean, we've been living with this now for two years. And moreover, the CDC failed to adequately explain its decision. 
And so the court declared the act of the CDC to be unlawful, and it vacated the mask mandate. And as you point out, TSA is not going to enforce it either. So um, what happens now? I mean, can they just find a judge in a more favorable circuit court to, you know, go the other way? Or what's the next step here? Okay, theoretically, the CDC, the Biden administration, could appeal. Theoretically, they could go through the rulemaking process, which would extend beyond the time that they were originally going to put this mask mandate, continue it into effect. And the other thing is the airlines can still require masks if they wanted to, but it's obvious the airlines don't want to do it. Um, Even locally, VIA could still require masks. They just can't blame it on the CDC or the feds because the feds are no longer requiring it. And I think another point is anybody who still wants to wear a mask on an airlines or anywhere else is right. still free to do so. Right. So this is a this is a, an application of the rule of law. It's a consistent approach under our constitution and it recognizes the individual liberty individual liberty of people to wear masks if they really want to wear a mask. Well, I guess what I was getting at was they're making a big deal out of the fact that this was a Trump appointed judge um in Tampa young judge uh didn't get a good uh uh rating from the aba uh when she was nominated we've seen many times before where they just go to the you know the the ninth circuit or they find a federal judge somewhere else or or a court somewhere else so this this could ping pong back and forth in other words right there could be a forum shopping attempt but once this order is in place I think, as a practical matter, the Biden administration is going to have to have it overturned. They can't just ignore it, and they probably just can't pop up across the country and try to get somebody else to rule differently, because this federal judge has vacated the mask mandate. So their options are try to get the judge to reconsider the decision, try to get an appellate court to review it. More likely than not, they're probably just going to give up on it, because it's unlikely that they're going to get relief in either of those two two venues. Um I think the, the other thing that's going to happen as a practical matter is the airlines are going to be enthusiastically not enforcing a mask mandate unless they absolutely have to, which right now mm-hmm. they don't have. But as you pointed out, if they required a, a mask, if they decided maybe a, a, under pressure from, say, a flight attendants union or, or some other you know interested party, and they said, well, we're going we're gonna to continue to require a mask, what is, what is different for the passenger that doesn't want to wear one today as opposed to a week ago? There would be nothing different. Private businesses can still require masks, and so the airlines could require masks, although all the major airlines wrote to the Biden administration asking for a rescission mm-hmm. of this rule. And so, is there a um, a lesson in here, uh, since you've read the entire decision, and, and I have not, and I probably wouldn't have understood it anyway, um, is there any guidance for how they could have, within their powers, done this differently? Yes, they could. Yes, they could have followed the process set out in the statute and the regulations. They could have announced that they were considering extending the rule. They could have asked for public comments. They could have gone through the formal process that's described. Even then, though, they might have some problems because the judge says the statute itself doesn't seem to allow for masking people because it's not a sanitizing uh, of any anybody except sticking a mask and reducing some, some vapor droplets. No, there's a process they could have gone through that arguably mm-hmm. would have avoided this problem. They just chose not to do so. They had gotten mm-hmm. too used to 
just making the sweeping pronouncements, yep. and everybody follows lockstep. Boy, you just described the last two years. That's, that describes yeah. an awful lot of the last two years. Bill Pyatt, constitutional law professor, St. Mary's University. Thank you, sir, tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. All right, 210-599-5555. We're asking you about it on the JR poll. Agree or disagree? Chuck, good afternoon. Hey, I'm glad you talked to that guy just then because that is perfect. I always said the CDC cannot make laws. All they do is make recommendations. I have, mm-hmm. we fly to Coast Mail, or did, three times a year and fly all over the country to see people. We have not flown and will not fly as long as the mask mandate is in place, period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I won't go to a business that requires a mask. You vote with your dollars. If people had not worn a mask and not flown, the mask would have been gone a year and a half ago because mm-hmm. the business would have said, hey, this is killing our business. You ask mm-hmm. any professional, doctor or, or nurse, that's not making money off of this, and they'll tell you that a virus cannot be stopped by a vaccine. If we did, we'd have one for the common cold. So, okay. You know, well, Jerry, I think you, to, your point about the, to your point about the mask mandate, that's why the airlines are saying what they're saying now, because they cannot money. make money. They cannot, yeah, they right, cannot right. make money doing this. It's not it's that they've like, seen the light or... It's, it's money. It's the dollars. Yeah. Nobody's saying yeah. you can't wear a mask. If you think they right. work, then wear one. But they That's don't right. work, in my opinion, I'm not going to wear one, ever. All right. Chuck, thank you, sir. This could change. We could wind up as we did in the schools. Remember with the schools, masks were off, masks are on, off, on. It could happen here. You heard uh, Professor Pyatt say that. But most likely, this is the end of the mask mandate on airplanes, on trains, on buses, in airports. Uh, agree or disagree with that? 210 599 Two things, real quick. I, I do believe there are people who will want to keep wearing them, and I respect that, and I have no problem with that. It doesn't annoy me, aggravate me. I don't feel the need to say something. I don't know why people do. Um, I've noticed in church there are people that still wear masks. I, 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 I was thinking about this yesterday in church because you know church for Easter was very, very, very packed. We were in there like sardines, and... Really, it's been a while since I've seen church like that. I think there will be people who will, this will be their new normal in crowd situations. Um, and it doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. They've got to be okay with the people around them not wearing masks. We have forgotten how to just live with each other's differences because one of the fixtures of COVID-19 and the pandemic was there was a rule for everything. There was tape on the floor (laughs) that told you where to stand. All your life you knew where to stand. Now there's tape. There were arrows telling you which direction to walk in on a sidewalk or a store aisle. All your life you knew how to do that. You've known how to do it since you were old enough to walk. So we're coming out of an era of regimentation and rules. And there will be people that will not want to give that up, and that's okay. But there will be a lot more of us who are more than ready to be done with it and have been for a while, and they're going to have to be okay with it too. And I was thinking about the people around me in church. Several of the people around me in church had masks on, and I was 
again, it, it didn't bother me. I just happened to notice it. But I, I found myself wondering, what do they think as they look at me? 210-599-5555, jack at ktsa.com. Esteban is on the radio. Esteban, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I was listening to you earlier, and the expert who was upset at the and the journalist who was upset at the judge said, we need to follow the advice of experts. You know, I've lived long enough. There was even a posting on a forum about autism spectrum, and basically the experts have been wrong quite often. And if we mindlessly follow experts instead of thinking for ourselves, why do we have elected officials? Why do we have judges? Why do we have all this, all these aspects of democracy in a republic? And so, you know, what always strikes me is people who say we, we should rely on experts. Well, define an expert. You know, personally, I'm glad it's getting warmer. I liked a little bit of the stuff with the COVID. I like people being a little bit distant from me. But that's me. You know, people, sometimes people want to be close. And mm-hmm. so this is a free society. And my take on, you know, I love what your constitutional expert said, but your your lawyer, the points that he brought up, but I like all these people who say that the master should stay on is define an expert. Well, one thing I've noticed about experts is that, um, as, as you point out, sometimes they're wrong, but also you can find your own expert, right? So yeah. through this whole thing, you could find, uh, you know, Dr. X who said um, that we don't have any drugs that work for this virus. And then you could find Dr. Y who said, oh, I think if you take hydroxychloroquine or this or that. And, and so the moral of that story, as with a lot of other things, is you can consult experts, and we always will. But that's not the same as just farming out all our decisions to unelected self-appointed or hand-selected experts. What, what, what COVID was about was not so much about experts being wrong. It was about tyrannical politicians hiding behind experts. I'm, I'm less concerned about the fact that scientists and doctors got some things wrong about COVID because you would expect that they would. But what was more telling to me was when politicians hid behind them and gave orders and did things they've always wanted to do and are still trying to do things they've always wanted to do, but they dress it up with the, well, I've got an expert here. And, you know, we we could say a lot about experts allowing themselves to be used or co-opted that way, but in any event, that's that's the telling feature of these last two years. People wanting power and disguising it in the name of science or technology or or what have you, um, but the 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 naked desire for that power has always been there and it will always be there, and there'll be some other guys or you know they'll put some other you know war paint on it next time. If they don't have a virus, they'll have something else. They'll disguise it as you know. You hear it all the time, right? Oh, we're having a we're having a gun emergency. We're having a climate emergency. It's all just another way of of dressing up naked ambitions and ambitions for power. 210-599-5555. So I mentioned um, church, Easter Sunday, and and you may have been uh, at a worship service, or you may have w- watched and seen people in the parks 
celebrating Easter. You may have seen, if you're not a particularly religious person yourself, it was probably hard for you to miss that yesterday was a major religious holiday. I'm going to tell you about one of our elected officials and what she tweeted about yesterday and see what you think about the appropriateness of this tweet. I, um, again, I, I, I respect what, what people choose to do. I just think they should choose to do it. And, um, I think we're going to see now how we get along with each other in the absence of edicts. You know, we keep finding out the damage that's been done. We keep finding out ways in which we've hurt ourselves as a society, as a brotherhood of man, with this stupid two-year experiment with live subjects. And and I think we're going to find out a little bit more. Because when there was no choice, quote-unquote, that was one thing. But we're restoring people to a a, a life or an existence where almost everything is a choice. Almost everything is up to you. And there are going to be people that won't remember how to do that or won't be comfortable doing that and won't be comfortable with you doing it. Now, yesterday was Easter. Keep that in mind. When I tell you that Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was tweeting about how she had been on a um, an airplane and there were some Christians, it was a charter flight, and there was a Christian group and they were having a sing-along and a prayer on the airplane. And it bothered Ilhan Omar, who's a Muslim. She wrote, I think my family and I should have a prayer session the next time I'm on a plane. How do you think it will end? Um, I, I, you know, I, just when I think the squad can't get any more obnoxious, they do. And I wouldn't even bring this up except for one thing. How many times in the last 21 years have we been lectured to about post 9/11 we're not at war with Islam we're not we're not going we're, we are we are not to and we don't want to and I believe we really don't want to profile How many times have we been told by our leaders how disappointing we are to them? How many times have you been told to be kind, to be fair, to be tolerant? And it's a one-way street. It's a one-way street. Now, a lot of people reacted to Ilhan Omar by telling her to go back to Somalia. I, I would never say that. I'm not saying that, and I would never say that. Um, Our country is bigger and stronger than Ilhan Omar will ever be. And she can whine and complain and talk about how unfair it is. And part of what makes our country great is that she's a gnat and we can shrug it off. But you cannot whine about discrimination against your religion or the practice of it 
or demand public tolerance for the public practice of it, and then bitch and moan about other people openly practicing theirs. Most people of faith know that we are a better country when faith is practiced openly. Most people of faith know that when others are practicing their faith, they are actually trotting the path we will trod. So their openness and their expression of their faith actually enables and makes it easier for us to express ours, which might be different, slightly or very. Most people of faith know that. And of all the days of the year, of all the days of the year to have a little bit of grace, to have a little bit of interfaith tolerance, of, of all the days of the year to maybe even, you know, build a bridge, how, how great would it have been if instead Ilhan Omar had said, it warmed my heart, even though they're not of my faith, to see these people and the joy on their faces and the joy in their voices. And isn't it a great thing here in America, unlike the place I came from, that you can openly express it, no matter what it is. This is a time of year when all of the monotheistic religions are celebrating. This is the perfect time of year to build that bridge, to have that moment. And she goes for a cheap shot. And that's what I mean about these woke people, and it's the same thing with those two losers at the PTA dance in Arizona. They're just relentlessly toxic. And don't let them ruin your happiness or steal your happiness or, you know, rain on your parade. They're just miserable. I'm glad that Ilhan Omar is not the only Muslim I know. I hope she's not the only Muslim anybody knows. She's a terrible representative of her own religion. Or of any religion. And... Again, I, I, I don't even know, did, did, it, did it even occur to her what day of the year it was? Maybe not. You know, I know that we've pretty much killed God in politics. I, I, I get that. I don't like it, but I know we have. And we've done that deliberately, and we've done it um, systematically over, you know, the last 50 or 60 years. I remember when I was a little kid, Time Magazine had a, story uh, cover story is god dead or something like that it was a big deal at the time this was in the 60s and people are still writing those things and making those arguments but one of the things we've done is we've taken a lot of um the understanding of faith and religion out of the public square so i don't know if that was intended as part of, of killing God in our politics and killing God in our schools. I don't know if that was part of, of what they wanted to do, but one of the effects of it is that now there's a lot more people that don't even understand. They just have no literacy with why this person is saying what they're saying or wearing what they're wearing or what a cross means or, 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 or a star of David or whatever it is. And 
had we been able to foresee all this, we might have thought, well, you know, that's not going to be a good thing. Because part of the reason we all got along was we all kind of sort of understood what the other person was doing, even if it wasn't our choice or we didn't practice it. And now there's all this sort of ignorance and blindness that makes it easy to just mock and ridicule. And you can, you can use the word tolerance, but you're not going to get tolerance from people that are ignorant, right? Ignorance doesn't lead to tolerance. And we've got a lot of ignorance about faith and faith traditions and why people do what they do. Ilhan Omar would be the first to say we should understand the Muslim experience in America. We should understand what it means to be Muslim in America. She talks about it all the time. She's made no effort. She hasn't lifted one finger to understand what it means to be a Christian in America. Except it gave her a chance to send out a snarky tweet on Easter Sunday. Everybody's talking about this uh, moment at the White House Easter egg event, Dennis, where um, you probably have seen this video. It's gone viral today. Uh, The president goes over to the rope line and he gets a question about Afghanistan. He starts to give an answer and the Easter bunny (laughs) comes along and like, uh, you know, like herds him or 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 moves him away from the reporters. It's gotten to the point where even the Easter Bunny is handling Joe Biden. This is how it sounded. Take a listen. You have to see the the look on the president's face when he turns around and the Easter Bunny is there. It's. I don't know what it is. You just have to see it. You decide. Uh, 608 on 550 and 1071 KTSA. We've been talking about a lot of things this afternoon, and you're invited to get in on any of them at 210-599-5555. So the big story today, the ruling by a federal judge, uh, Judge Catherine Kimball Mazell, U.S. District Judge in Tampa, uh, this was a case brought by a uh, legal group and um, by a couple of citizens who are frequent flyers. So they were the plaintiffs. And the judge ruled that the mandate uh, that the CDC had issued that affected planes and trains and everything else, it was done under the Administrative Procedure Act, but it acted outside the scope of the authority of that act. So... As of now, it's not being enforced by law. It doesn't have the force of law behind it. But there may be, we may still have carriers, we may have transportation companies or airport authorities or what have you that will say, well, we're going to still require them. So hopefully everybody is taking a deep breath here and stay calm. And uh, Because I, I really think part of what we're struggling with at the moment, I know masks are controversial and vaccines are controversial, but you know what else we're struggling with is it's been a long time since a, a lot of this stuff was totally up to you. And you may know what to do, and I may know what to do, but there's going to be people who got very accustomed to their decisions being made for them. And they're not going to want to live in a world where Everybody's doing it their own way. 
I mean, even though that wasn't that long ago, it seems like a million years ago. And you can't tell me we haven't changed this society and the way it works and the way people relate to each other. You can't tell me something hasn't changed. You feel it. You see it all around you. 210-599-5555. As usual, the emotional response to this judge's decision is to say that she's a, an ignorant woman appointed by Trump, that she doesn't know science. She didn't make a ruling on science. She made it on the law. Um, a lot of the people that are having a meltdown in the media are people that have been going to fancy dinners for the last two years and removing their masks. They've been seen photographed in their playgrounds, the playgrounds of the rich and famous, no mask. But they're horrified that people sitting back in economy class will take their mask off or won't wear one. One guy tweeted, Try explaining to your friends in other liberal democracies that a single, unelected, life-tenured, 35-year-old judge just abolished the air travel mask mandate for the entire country. Every word of that is ignorant. Uh, other liberal democracies also have separation of powers, dude. That's what that's what courts are for. There's no there's no point in having a judiciary if it isn't independent of other branches of government. And um, judges are appointed, not elected, in most liberal democracies. As far as her being thirty five, that seems like kind of an ageist thing to say, right? I mean. If she's too young to issue a legal ruling which is based on law, then why are we listening to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> about anything, right? Why are we listening to senior correspondents on cable networks that haven't even broken 30? Now, I'm not saying I feel that way, but if this dude thinks you're, you're too young at 35 to serve on a federal court, then I would argue you're too young to do a lot of other things. That's his argument, not mine. He called it a power-drunk juristocracy. I love these people, though. When, when a court does something they like or believe in, then it's brave, right? Then they're all about the Constitution, and they're just wrapping themselves in parchment. It's hilarious. 210-599-5555. Speaking of hilarious... You won't get funnier than this. Diversity activists somehow find themselves at a PTA fundraising dance in uh, the Scottsdale School District in Arizona. This PTA had hired a local disc jockey, a guy named Kim Coco Hunter, who's a club DJ, you know, a party DJ, like you'd hire for a wedding or things, you know. And uh, they saw him, and he's spinning the hits and playing the hits and people are dancing and grooving he's got his gold lame on and they somehow got it into their head that he was a white guy in blackface and he had to come out and say I actually am black <laughs> I don't know where do you go with that right there's so many ways you can go with so many jokes you can make with that 210-599-5555 I guess they're in red face now Oh, I found the, uh, this was Time Magazine, April 8th, 
1966. I knew it. I knew it was in the 60s. April 8th, 1966, Time Magazine ran a provocative, controversial cover. No picture, and they always used to have a picture. And the words were, Is God Dead? So right around Easter of 1966, the biggest, most widely read news magazine was asking, Is God Dead? And over the weekend, the New York Times read an op-ed piece headlined, In This Time of War, I Propose We Give Up God. The writer of the piece was raised as an Orthodox Jew, but has turned his back on his faith, and he wrote this whole piece, and I won't bore you with everything that's in it, but the gist of it is, there's all this suffering and misery in the world because people are emulating God. So when we make war, when we hurt other people, when we let other people starve, we are doing what we have seen God do, because God is vengeful and hateful and warlike and violent, he says. He writes, perhaps now, as missiles rain down and the dead are discovered in mass graves, it's a good time to stop emulating this hateful God. Maybe we can stop extolling his brutality. Perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over God, to be as unlike him as possible, he wrote in the April 15th New York Times op-ed. Let's see what you think about that, how you feel about that. I'm not saying this to be judgmental or anything, but they don't they don't really go to church they're not regular church going family he was telling me that um his youngest daughter who's about five or six uh they were having a conversation at bedtime and she asked him who is god and that's the exactly the thing a kid will ask at bedtime right i mean forget talk show hosts you think we ask hard questions a kid at bedtime will ask the hardest questions that have ever been asked in the history of the of the globe. Who is God? She asks him. And he's fumbling and stumbling. How am I going to answer this? And it would be a hard question to answer for him anyway, but it's even harder. He's tired and he's trying to get her to bed. So he, he starts to tell her, because it's Easter, he starts to tell her about um well, God is our creator, and uh God made everything around you. And she said, um, what's his name? Kids are good, right? And he starts saying, well, uh, there are many different names for God. And he says to her, one of them is Jesus Christ. And she goes, you're not supposed to say that. So she knew that you weren't supposed to take his name in vain. But then he explains, well, I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying his name you can say his name when you're saying his name but you can't say it as a you know so he's trying to just sort of put a you know kind of like bring this to a conclusion let's it's time to get to bed you know but it's it's it, that's the nature of of religion right it's the nature of faith is there is no simple put a period on it right there's no way to wrap it up and sum it up and um, I told him, I said, well, yeah, I know you were trying to get her to bed that night, but I said, you know, it's good that she's wondering about that stuff. And um, 
I know that he will now work on having better answers for her, which is good. It's good for all of them. In 1966, Time Magazine asked the question, is God dead? And um, when I was growing up, that was a very serious concern uh, because there was a lot happening in the world over these last several decades that made people wonder. Not so much if God had died, but if he had sort of forgotten about us or we weren't, we weren't his, his project anymore. Um, but this, this piece in the New York Times is fascinating to me because I don't know how you could get it this wrong. The writer, the piece is entitled, In This Time of War, I Propose We Give Up God. So he's coming at it from the other side, not God's given up on us. We need to give up on him. And his argument is, all the bad things we do to one another are emulations or imitations of God. Well, it's it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. When we're at our worst, we're not imitating God. Now, God has, especially in the Old Testament, God has his moments. He can be stern. He can be harsh. He has a, He expects a lot. We're made in his image. He should, right? But I don't know how you could get at this wrong. War, um, ignoring the suffering of others, hating people that are different, those are all things that are the opposite of God. We might dress them up. We might say we're acting out of our faith or morality. But let's, let's be honest, right? If you know anything about this, this God concept it's it's incredible love it's um durable commitment i mean the bible is full of 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 god standing by man no matter how much man disappoints shuns scorns man tries to fire god that's one of the subtexts of the bible right but he never quite does and God never gives up. This writer says, um, we need to stop imitating this hateful God. Now, I've talked about this before on the show. C.S. Lewis was a very famous writer, and he was an atheist who came around to Christianity. And he wrote a lot about it. And he, he wrote about Christianity with the clarity of someone who had seen it from the outside. You know how it is when you're in a forest, you can't see how big the forest is or how many trees there are. You have to be outside the forest to appreciate the forest. And C.S. Lewis had been outside the forest, which is a place many Christians have never been. And he wrote about how, when he was an atheist, one of the reasons he did not believe there could be a God was the cruelty of the universe was that there seemed to be so much injustice and then he began to realize that if there's injustice if you believe something's wrong then you must also believe something is right a man he wrote can't call a line crooked 
unless he's seen a straight line, right? He wrote, what I was comparing this universe, what, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So how can there be right and wrong if there isn't a fixed sense of right and wrong? He wrote, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed, too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please me. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, he wrote, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we would never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So C.S. Lewis has been where this New York Times writer apparently now is. And maybe in time this writer will make the journey that C.S. Lewis made. A lot of people have made it. A lot of people have found that you can't have it both ways. You can't have a, a, a world with no higher power. We're it. We're, we're as good as it gets. But then turn around and say something is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. That concept of absolute right, absolute wrong requires something fixed, something higher. Something that isn't just dependent on our moods, right? Or the current fads or fashions. I mean, we'd have to be honest with ourselves. If if right and wrong changed every few years, like hemlines or hairstyles, that would be one thing. And then when somebody did something outside right and wrong, we wouldn't excoriate them. We'd just say they were out of fashion, they were out of style. That's not the current hairdo. But we don't, right? We, we, we lambaste wrong. And we praise right. But there has to be right and wrong first. that we can sit here in the White House briefing room with no masks, but people can't sit in an airplane cabin with no masks. Well, Peter, I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. That I'm aware of, if you're a doctor. I wasn't aware of that today, until today. Okay, not a doctor. Just making sure. I don't know. Um, and nor do you play one on TV. Nor does he play one on TV. There you go. Most days. Um... Man, those two. Am I the only one that's noticed? Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki, it's like if Maddie and David for Moonlighting were in politics, you know? It's that ying, 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 but you almost wonder, right? I don't want to ruin your appetite for dinner, but I'm just saying. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Not accusing, I'm just wondering. They do seem to have like a, a fixation. 
Kind of like Maddie and David. Just, you know, but, but, but I preferred Maddie and David. Um, Greg Popovich, should he come back for another season coaching the Spurs? He's done it all. He's won it all. He's got the records. Um, but of course they've fallen short the last few years. Is he coming back next year? There's a lot of speculation in the NBA about it. And, uh, we were asking you that on Friday. Still over the weekend, tons of emails. I'll read you a few of them here. Uh, Carrie wrote, I wasn't able to call on Friday, but I was intrigued by the discussion of Greg Popovich. Undoubtedly, he's an excellent coach. However, over the last several years, I've found myself having to make decisions on who receives my time, money, and support. I wouldn't have many entertainment options if I chose not to watch anyone who disagreed with me politically, but there are some who cross the line for me because of their dishonesty and their pure contempt for my beliefs and values. Over the years, he writes, that has meant dropping CNN, late-night talk shows, and, yes, the Spurs. Popovich doesn't just hate Trump, but anyone who voted for him or believes in his policies, and I will not support that. So Kerry says, let him go. Al writes to Jack at KTSA.com. He's a great coach. He's entitled to his views. And if Spurs ownership wants to allow him to pop off at Spurs press conferences while in his Spurs capacity, that is their business. It would be interesting to know if his rants, as opposed to the team's play, has cost them ticket holders. I personally know of four. I would like to know if his principles extend down to his wallet. I've asked the three sports columnists to be journalists rather than just Popovites when he goes into political mode, says Al. Cullen, dear Jack, despite my fellow listeners' feelings for his politics, he is a great coach. And truthfully, I think he fits the culture of the Spurs and the NBA as a whole, politics included. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I I disagree with a lot of what Popovich says, but you you can't deny that if you were to take like a secret ballot of NBA players and the whole NBA universe, um, I'm sure it leans left. (laughs) I'm sure that it's more in keeping with him than it is with me. So... My wanting him to think like I do is probably a, a, a pipe dream, and there's probably a lot more coaches that have his view that just don't express it or maybe are not in a strong enough position. I'm not saying they all feel that way. I'm sure there are conservative players. I'm sure there are conservative coaches and team executives. And we know, for example, that there are numerous uh, professional athletes that have uh, you know, just very quietly differed on these issues or not gotten the vaccine or done whatever. But again, he, Colin is right. I mean, Popovich is more like the NBA than, say, you and I are. Richard writes to Jack at KTSA.com. I hope he coaches forever because I wouldn't want him to dabble in a political run. He'd probably win. And Mary says, Jack, I find him horrible. I definitely respect differing political opinion, but not like he displays. But he's not going anywhere as he's too good a coach. Not sure if he's a good character influence on young men, but his coaching is impeccable, writes Mary. Donald loved the man until he insulted me and whoever voted for Trump. He speaks from the heart, and if he calls you an idiot, he really means it. He called us way worse. And Steve writes, um, Popovich is the greatest coach. He's good at what he does. He has the most wins ever. I don't like his politics, but his record of success in basketball speaks for itself. I would welcome him back if I were the owners. He writes, a surgeon can be the best in his field and never lose a patient, but a jerk otherwise. 
I'd be able to let the jerk version of him slide if he could save my life. So, we'll see what Greg Popovich does or doesn't do. And I don't know when that will be. 210-599-5555. A 60-year-old man in Italy who claimed to be blind has now been accused of faking his disability after being caught looking at a woman's behind. Man lives in Turin, Torino. He was outside of his home when the financial police, that's what they're called, caught him looking back over his shoulder at a passing woman to catch a glimpse of her bottom, despite the man claiming to be completely blind. Now, you would think the story would be over right there, right? I mean, it's almost like a, you know, it's like a bad joke, right? Blind guy swivels his head, looks at the lady. Um, They were saying that um, he was going to lose his benefits. So he got a lawyer named Roberta Alba, and her argument is that he is not completely blind. He is able to sense beauty. (laughs) So apparently his beauty sensor still, still works. That's either a really good lawyer or we just learned ourselves some science tonight, right? You thought it was eyes. It's not. It's your beauty sensor. So. <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to hear more about this lawyer. If I'm ever in trouble, that, she sounds like maybe somebody you'd need, you know, you'd want to reach out to in a, in an emergency. Remember that professor? We had this story a while back. He was a professor. I forget where this was. Somewhere in the Midwest. And he would not abide by, his name was Nicholas Merriweather, he was a philosophy professor, he would not um, agree to call students by their preferred pronouns. There were only a few of them, but they were the people that were, you know, saying, I have these preferred pronouns. And he had said, as a matter of policy in his classroom, and he'd put it in his syllabus, in my classroom, um, I'm going to call you by the pronouns that you are, or if you prefer, I will call you Mr. or Ms., or just use your last name, which is, of course, gender neutral, right, if I just call you by your last name. So his lawyers argued that he went out of his way to be accommodating, but he had also the right, and he claimed a religious right, to not use incorrect pronouns. Well, anyway, he won. The university has settled with him in the lawsuit, and uh, they paid him 400000 in damages and legal fees. So, I, it is really, I know this is a big thing. I know this preferred pronoun issue is a, it's a big, big thing. I can't wrap my head around it. I really can't. I, I, I guess I was born too, too early or I'm too old or I can't, I can't learn it, you know. And I don't know how old this professor is, but I'll 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 respect and I'll tolerate how you want to live and what you want to live as or how. But it, it, I have to draw the line at pretending I don't know something I know. Does that make sense? 
Bill Maher has a new comedy special that's streaming on um, HBO. Well, it's not streaming on HBO. It's on HBO. It's called Adulting. And um, he's actually talking about, speaking of the masks being in the news today, he's talking about people wearing masks even now and comparing it to keeping the condom on after sex. Here's the trailer for the HBO special with Bill Maher. Take a listen. Look, every generation is the what-were-you-thinking generation. Doctors used to do cigarette ads. A lung surgeon needs steady hands. I mean, I that Trump, unlike every other president, did not age in office. We did. Not that I would ever get work done, not for any moral reason. It's just, it doesn't work. Now you just look old and weird. We have to find our way back from not loathing each other. Facebook, stop using it to argue with some kid you went to third grade with about Brett Kavanaugh. People didn't used to talk politics all the time and they had no idea how much they hated each other. You know, that is really a good point. I mean, all all of those were funny, but it it is true. There was a time when you could know someone, really know them, and know a lot about them, and maybe talk to them every day if they were like a neighbor, and not know their politics, and not feel like you should know, or that was a gap in your knowledge. I, I, I remember that. You remember that, right? Also remember, when you did know people were politically different, it was just a thing. My dad was really good friends with a man down the street. I played with his son when we were we were about the same age for a while, and um, he lived like three doors down from us. He worked for the Postal Service. But my dad and he were really good friends, and um, both of them walked a lot and jogged, and they'd see each other and stuff. So anyway, m- my dad had voted for uh, Nixon, and this guy uh, hated Nixon and, and had a Nix on Nixon bumper sticker. That never came up. That never affected their friendship. And I think the reason we were able to do that back then is because we didn't believe that we had to carry that opinion through in and into everything we did. We knew how to have opinions without being ruled by our opinions. You know, there's a movie, the Bro- a Bronx Tale. Have you ever seen a Bronx Tale? It's a great movie. And there's a moment in the movie where Chaz Palminteri is this older mobster, and he's talking to this boy, this young boy. And he asks him, I don't, I'm going I'm to butcher the line, I don't remember it exactly, but he says something to him like, why do you care about Mickey Mantle? Mickey Mantle doesn't care about you. And that's what we should ask ourselves about politics and politicians. We get all rah-rah for our team. And, I mean, I want you to vote and be aware of stuff and whatnot, but they don't care about you as much as you care about them. Monday night, the results on the Stevens Roofing JR poll. Do you agree or disagree with ending the federal travel mask mandates? 92% agree with the judge's decision today, 8% disagree. We'll have a new JR poll tomorrow. We get started at 4, or you can find the poll anytime 
at KTSA.com. And whole episodes of our show are available on demand when you want them. Listen whenever you want. I've been on at all different times of day on KTSA, and now you can listen to this show at all different times of day. Go to the Jack Riccardi page at KTSA.com. I'm still trying to figure out how this happened. Did you hear about this story out of Michigan where a kid brought... Um, he apparently brought a container, or she, I believe it was a little girl, brought a container of margaritas to kindergarten. Jose Cuervo in kindergarten. And it was snack time. And they passed it around, and the kids got woozy. I, I've read this now in a number of places. It doesn't sound like a real news story, doesn't it? It sounds like a... Like a Babylon Bee kind of thing. I, I would not have thought in this over-litigated, super freaked out, cautious era that we live in that you could just bring a thermos or something and share it around the classroom. They don't even let kids bring, you know, snacks with peanuts or peanut butter in it, right? Because of a peanut allergy somebody might have. Kids can't, you know, have any over-the-counter medicines or cough drops or whatever, you know, it's all the... So I, I guess I'm trying to figure out how they missed happy hour in kindergarten while they're policing all those... They're getting all the pronouns right, but the kids are having margaritas in Michigan. Parents were outraged. You know, I can understand being outraged. I can. Although the kids probably also took a pretty good nap that afternoon. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not condoning it, but sometimes you have to make lemonade out of lemons, right? Just saying they probably, those were probably not super rambunctious kids that afternoon. You know what I mean? Put them in the back of the Camry. They're not saying a lot. Just, Pointing that out, everybody's okay, thank God. Um, those parents, I, I would like to be, wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall for that parent-teacher conference? I mean, have you ever been called to the school because your kids did something? In my family, it was my, my brother, my middle brother. He was the one. There's always one, right, in every family? Sometimes more than one, but there's always at least one. And he was all, if the school called... <laughs> Man, my mother knew it was him, and he got in all kinds of things. One time he got into a fight, you know, and they were roll, they were throwing haymakers and rolling around and wrestling and fighting, and it was one of those, you know, not play fighting. They were angry. And he got one of the other kid's teeth embedded in the skin of his scalp. <laughs> I mean, how, how does that happen? To go get stitched, they'd take the tooth out of his head and stitch it up. So, can totally see if that kind of thing is happening back in the seventies. I guess I can see where the margaritas would would have come from. So anyway, um, probably very very locked down snack time at that school from now on. I would predict. I would predict snack time at that school from now on is going to be the most monitored, screened, scrutinized one-to-one teacher-student ratio they've ever had for snack time at that school in Lavonia, Michigan. I hope you have a good night. Thank you for listening to our show. We'll catch you here at 4 o'clock tomorrow or again anytime. Jack Riccardi, page, ktsa.com.